Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Steph Storr, and this is Ask the Expert. Today's episode is a fun one because we're going to focus on a very well-known Tudor figure, to say the least, but with a twist. That figure is, of course, the one and only Elizabeth I. Now, we've talked about her and her drama, her leadership, her love life, all of that countless times. And although there's always more to learn and discover, today we have Professor Sue Doran here to focus on Elizabeth's inner circle for the show today. We're going to discuss her friends, their hobbies, and everything in between. So, Sue, I'm honored to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, if I read correctly, you've written how many books? 16? Uh, Probably. I I haven't counted, but there's a mixture of different types of books, but probably 16 will do. Oh, my goodness. That's such an accomplishment. What got you interested in Elizabeth I to start with? Well, I'm not sure that I was particularly interested in the Queen. I was very interested in the period. I was interested in the aristocracy. I wanted to write my PhD on an aristocrat. I was very influenced by an American historian called Lawrence Stone, who brought together different aspects of the culture and the political life and the economic life of aristocrats in his book, The Crisis of the Aristocracy. And so I did my doctorate on one of the aristocrats who was not a favorite of Elizabeth, uh, Thomas Radcliffe, third Earl of Sussex. And that brought me into writing about Elizabeth's matrimonial negotiations because Sussex wanted her to marry and was um, involved in negotiating her marriages or the courtships uh, with the Archduke Charles of Austria and later on with the Duke of Anjou. So that's how I really came to Elizabeth, a bit through a side door rather than straight on as many historians and biographers do. Isn't that interesting? Well, you are still definitely the expert we are happy to have today. So let's get to it, shall we? I think as far as her inner circle, we're going to start today with some questions from the listeners about her ladies in waiting. So just to give us a little bit of background, how did one become Elizabeth's lady in waiting? Well, when she first came to the throne, she had as her ladies, there were gentlewomen and maids of honor, uh, women who had been round her at Hatfield. And some of those were women who had been appointed um, by her predecessors. And some of them were members of her own family. So, for example, Catherine Carey, who was the daughter of her cousin, Lord Hunsdon. Lord Hunsdon was the the son of Mary Boleyn. Um, She came to Hatfield when Elizabeth was living there, when she was probably about 15 years old. And she continued in the household of the Queen um, after Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558. So there was there were a mixture. 
Now, there were some women who, who came to be in the household. They received positions as maid of, maids of honor because they were aristocrats and they had important family relations who essentially saw that this would be a leg up for their daughters. They'd probably get a good husband. And so they, they were, you know, writing to Elizabeth or writing to uh, people who are influential with Elizabeth, trying to get their daughters into Elizabeth's household. So it was a mixture of people that Elizabeth chose, people that she inherited. Sometimes she couldn't get out of them because uh, they were kin whom she was probably a bit suspicious of. That, I think, is true of Catherine and Mary Gray. And then there were those she chose because she was fond of them and she trusted their loyalty. You mentioned the Gray sisters, and I can't wait to come back to that, but we'll, we'll circle back to that one in a second. But now, as far as the ladies in waiting, what, what exactly is your role if you are a, actually either a gentlewoman or a lady in waiting or a, you know any, any of the different titles that surround her? What are the different roles that you can have? Okay. Well, the top role is to be a gentlewoman of the bedchamber. And there you would be one of Elizabeth's intimates. You would take it in turns to sleep with Elizabeth, uh, sometimes in her bed, but usually on a, a sort of portable bed um, that would be next to her in the bedchamber. And you would be uh, responsible for her toilet. And I don't just mean going to the toilet. I mean, making her look grand and beautiful, uh, wearing jewels and all the fine clothes that had to be really tied to her and pinned to her uh, because they were all in separate pieces and they were ensembled together to make her look uh, as as grand as, and magnificent as she did. So the ladies um, of the bedchamber were those who spent most time with Elizabeth in her privy apartments, and they would also be present during the day along with the lesser status gentlewomen of the privy chamber. In, in amusing Elizabeth, they would be, uh, when Elizabeth was not at business, they would be chatting, they would be playing cards, uh, sometimes they would ride with her or walk with her. So they were always around. There weren't a lot of them. We mustn't think of, you know, there being 50 or 100. We're talking about about between 10, 20, at most 30, who would be around um, and not all at the same time. And then there were the maids of honor. These were much younger. They were unmarried. Um, and they would be sort of accessories. Um, I don't think Elizabeth necessarily had much in common with them, but they were expected to be part of her retinue, to accompany her when she made her presence seen and felt in public spaces. So they, they had different, different tasks. Um, they were not her counsellors. But that didn't mean that they didn't sometimes offer her counsel, not on matters of state, but maybe about individuals who were new to court, they would give their opinion, or perhaps even about some of the men who were presenting themselves as suitors for Elizabeth's hand. So Elizabeth expected them to be educated, to be clever, not too clever, but you know, clever enough, and even women who might entertain her with their poems uh, and listen to Elizabeth's poems. So it, it, was a, it was a difficult job. 
because some of it might be seen as menial in terms of what we would think of as menial in terms of getting her clothes ready, getting the bed ready for her to sleep in. But it was also one where she was expected, as I said, to entertain the Queen and to provide companionship. Would there ever be a case where she didn't necessarily look you know, fondly upon any of them? Or did she really only surround herself with these women who she did want to be to be seen as companions sometimes? I think there were some women who were effectively foisted on her uh, because of their kinship. And I've mentioned um, Mary and, and Catherine Gray. I don't think Elizabeth was fond of them at all. Um, for a short time, Arbella Stewart, because of her kinship, was with the Queen. And again, I don't think Elizabeth um, cared for Arbella. And then there would be the daughters or the granddaughters of earls um, and barons that Elizabeth was expected to have in her in her household. But there were some women that Elizabeth was clearly very fond of. Some of them are well known to us. I mean, Cat Ashley, until she died, was, was obviously um, almost a substitute mother figure. So was Blanche Parry, who was with Elizabeth un until her own death, when she went blind even before her death. So she wasn't terribly useful to Elizabeth, but Elizabeth kept her close um, until she died. And then there were others that clearly entertained Elizabeth and Elizabeth felt very fond of. Uh, so again, there's a mixture. But it's quite clear that there were some women that Elizabeth didn't entirely trust, she couldn't afford to, um, and that Elizabeth could not totally let the mask down. But nevertheless, they came closest to being her intimates. And the most obvious ones, I've mentioned Kat Ashley, but also I think her Carey relatives. There were two Careys. One was Catherine Carey, who was the daughter of Mary Boleyn. And then there was another Catherine Carey, who was the granddaughter of um, of Mary Boleyn. And Elizabeth was very, very fond of both of them. Um, the daughter of Mary Boleyn, who was obviously much older, in fact, nearly, I think, about 11 years older than Elizabeth, she died in 1569. And Elizabeth was distressed, but nothing like as distressed as Elizabeth was when Catherine Carey um, the granddaughter of Mary Boleyn, who was who was younger than Elizabeth, but died shortly before her. And everyone noticed that the life had gone out of Elizabeth when Catherine Carey, who was then the Countess of Nottingham, died. Uh, Elizabeth's sadness um, was described as melancholic. Would you say that she had any friends then that weren't necessarily, I guess for, for lack of a better word, someone that worked for her. So did she have friends outside of her, her ladies in the court and things like that? Or did everybody that she kind of spent time with, did they all basically work for her? That's really the only way to put it, I think. Yes, I think that we certainly can see at least one woman that would fall into the category that you're, you're describing. Catherine, Countess of Huntingdon. Um, she spent a lot of time away from court, um, because she was married to the Earl of Huntington, who was Lord President of the Council of the North for a considerable number of years. But when he died, she came down to London and she had her house 
in Chelsea and she spent some time at court, but she wasn't as such a lady in in waiting or a gentlewoman of the bedchamber. She was independent, but was described as being very close to Elizabeth. Um, And I think she was close to Elizabeth even before her husband died, because Elizabeth was the one who had to tell her. And Elizabeth wanted to do it as sensitively as she possibly could. There were others too. Lady Norris um, was someone that Elizabeth was fond of, who was not one of her her servants, one of her uh, her ladies of of the privy chamber or bedchamber. So yes, there were a few women, not many, um, who perhaps didn't see her so so regularly and so um, often, um, but that Elizabeth clearly cared for and enjoyed the company of. That's nice. That's nice to hear because you don't always hear her as being warm and fuzzy, I don't think. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So if you were a close friend of Queen Elizabeth I, would you ever have any private time with her? Because, you know, she's got all these people around her all the time working and and obviously at court. Does she ever have any downtime to just be with her friends and her peers? Yes, I think she does. Um, she's never alone, so she doesn't have time when she's out of the public gaze. And probably people are looking at her, for example, when she's walking in the privy gardens. There are people who have to be bodyguards who are standing around. So, you know, it's it's not entirely private, but I think there are times when she is able to talk confidentially with some of her women um and that that it's sort of semi-private semi-public semi-private but the women are expected to make it private because they're not they're you know they don't take an oath of secrecy um non-disclosure agreements there were none but they didn't have to be because it was expected and if they did talk and gossip about matters that Elizabeth considered to be semi-private, then they would be in trouble. Now, you had mentioned earlier that someone like Kat Ashley would was kind of a replacement, you know, mother figure. Aside from the caretakers and the maternal figures, and then I guess we said that she's she has some some friends and some some close peers. What do you think kept people close to her? So I bring up Kat Ashley because I guess her role was similar to a maternal figure in her life. And that was kind of her relationship with her. And a lot of the people that we were talking about that they worked for her or things like that. But do you think that there was any, that there were genuine feelings for her when it came to some of the outsiders? What, what kinds of things kept her kept the people around her, do you think? Well, I think the first thing that we have to accept 
is that most women were placed in the Queen's household in order for them to do their families well. So they would always be asking Elizabeth for something. <laughs> um, they had to pick their moments, but they were there not just as companions of the Queen, but representatives of their family. And it's rare that that didn't happen. I mean, maybe one of the reasons why uh, Catherine Countess of Huntingdon could be close to Elizabeth was because her husband by then was dead, though admittedly she did have children who would want her to work on the Queen to make sure that they listened to, to the suits that she presented from them to, to the Queen, and they got rewards um, in one way or another. So I think we must always bear that in mind. And Elizabeth knew that. The other way that Elizabeth, I think, kept uh, her women close was by, by a, a mixture of, of warmth and coldness that they, they knew they had to please her. Um, they knew that for both their family's sake and because they, you know, this was, she was the queen. I mean, you know, there is a natural deference to someone who is over them. And so I think it's it was a mixture of wanting to please her in some cases because they did feel warm to her. And, you know, I can name some women I'm sure that's true of, but there were others I'm pretty sure didn't feel that way. And I suspect this became truer during the later part of the reign during the 1590s, when a lot of the women and the maids around her are younger than her, and they don't have as much in common with her. And they can see she's getting older after all. They see what Elizabeth is like without her makeup, without her wig. And I think some of that, um, some of that warmth possibly was dissipated as a result of that. So you can't totally generalise uh, about the relationships between Elizabeth and her women. And you can see also later in the reign that a fair number of the women were prepared to disobey the Queen, put at risk their own family relationships because they would um, be in the Queen's bad books through decisions surrounding their own marriages and their own love life. And that, um, that we can see happens to a fair number of women in the 1590s. It does. And I can't wait to get to that part. <laughs> but before we do, one more thing of, about her, her friendships and their hobbies together. What did they like to do together? Would she, was, was Elizabeth somebody that would play games or did they just read together? You know, things like that. Did they play cards? What kinds of things did Elizabeth like to do she outside of things. She very much enjoyed playing cards. She was a gambler. Um, a lot of people were at that time. Uh, she was always very cautious, so she didn't lose too much. And I think probably she had to be allowed to win on occasions. She loved hunting. She loved riding. She liked being outside and walking, as I've said, in the privy, in the privy gardens. She enjoyed embroidery. She enjoyed writings. I mean, she did translations. The women would be around her when she did that. Um, they'd obviously have to keep pretty quiet so that she could concentrate. And I suspect they also read aloud to each other um, uh, as well as, as 
as, as all these other activities. So it would be a busy time. Um, and then there were times which were not downtime where the women had to attend upon Elizabeth when there would be visitors, when there would be ambassadors, perhaps who would be allowed into the um, into the privy chamber. There would be times when she was given gifts and the women had to look after the gifts, um, especially if there were gifts that were expensive, gifts of jewels or, or miniatures in beautiful enamel or jeweled cases. So the women had responsibilities of that kind as well, and I'm sure they had to ooh and ah every time that a gift was given to Elizabeth in order to satisfy uh, the person who had who had donated it. Okay, I think we have reached the time in our conversation that everyone is waiting for. I know that when we talk about her personal life and things she likes to do and places she likes to go, we have to touch on her relationship with Robert Dudley. Yeah. So before I get to the questions about him, why don't you tell us a little bit about her relationship with him, how they meet, um, and what you think as far as how intimate they actually were, or do you think it was just a friendship? What, what does, what have your, what has your research brought to light for you about her relationship with him? Well, she knew Dudley when they were young. Um, Dudley was a member of her brother's household, and it's almost certain that Elizabeth would have met him at that point. She was not interested in Dudley um, when she was of, of a young adolescent. As we all know, Thomas Seymour, for a time, attracted her attention. And, of course, after that ended badly, Elizabeth, I think, would put men on one side. Um, Dudley Again, we're not entirely sure exactly when he arrives at house at Hatfield, but he certainly knows the Queen um, before she becomes before she becomes Queen while she's still a princess. We start getting rumors about Elizabeth and Dudley really very early on in the reign, about you know, in 1559. But Dudley was then married. Um, it was known he was married. Elizabeth knew he was married. Uh, Walter Scott's story of Kenilworth is figment of his imagination. Um, but there was nevertheless talk that maybe the marriage would be annulled so that Elizabeth could marry him. Now, annulments, I know we all think of annulments as being very difficult to get uh, because of Henry VIII's protracted attempts at, at annulling his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Sure. But right. in truth, there were a lot of annulments that were, were given to various people for various reasons. Whether Dudley would have got one or not, who knows? Whether Elizabeth would have accepted um, an annulment and a marriage to Dudley, again, we do not know. All we know is that there is gossip about it. And we do know that Elizabeth is behaving as a woman in love, at least by our understanding of how women in love behave and how people understood it at the time. And then the shocker occurred. Um, Amy Dudley, um, Amy Robsart, as she's usually known, was found dead. And there was suspicions that she had been murdered. And I think it's at that point that Elizabeth realizes that she cannot marry Robert. 
as much as she wanted to. That was going to be impossible. It would do her immeasurable harm. It would lead to defamations that she was behind the murder, uh, and it would it, it would ruin her her reputation. Now, I don't know, and other people disagree, but to my mind, they were flirtatious, but they did not have a full sexual relationship. I don't think Elizabeth could risk it. She knew very well about how babies are born, and <laughs> there was no way that she could think in terms of having um, an illegitimate child. Her, her, her tenure on the throne was pretty unstable at this point anyway. There was a claimant in the wings in Mary, Queen of Scots. There was no way she was going to put all this at risk with a, a fulfilled love affair um, with uh, Robert Dudley. And so my view is that, yes, she would have liked to have married him. Yes, she was almost certainly in love with him, at least for a short time. Uh, and after that, he became almost like a husband monkey, that he, he, you know, they settled into a very close relationship, but one where pretty well it was clear that Elizabeth would not marry him. It became clear, for example, when she offered him to marry Queen of Scots as a husband. And I think that was a genuine offer. I think she thought that this would be a solution to the problem of, of the succession. It would be a way of keeping Mary Queen of Scots safe and loyal to her. It meant she trusted Robert Dudley rather more than I would have done. And it also meant that, in a way, he was off her hands and that if she were going to marry, she would go for some illustrious prince. So Dudley didn't give up hope. And when Elizabeth visited him at Kenilworth in the mid-1570s, he puts on a grand passion. Oh, sorry, a grand pageant. He puts on a grand pageant um, <laughs> where it's almost a proposal of marriage. And he's also saying to her through the language of the pageantry, if you don't want to marry me, let me free and let me also go out as a soldier to fight on behalf of Dutch Protestants who had taken up arms against the King of Spain. And Elizabeth essentially said no to both. You're not marrying and you're not going to help the Dutch. And it was at that point that Dudley then had his secret marriage to Lettuce Knowles and um, all hell broke loose when Elizabeth discovered it. One thing Elizabeth did not like was secret marriages. That is a great segue into our next set of questions. But I just, I do want to point out uh, before we do that, as I'm hearing you tell us about the relationship with Dudley, it's just such an interesting position for her to have been in because I guess, you know, as we mentioned earlier, she's always portrayed as this kind of spiteful um, and angry person, especially when it came to other people's love lives or the, the way that she handled things with Dudley. But really hearing you talk about it makes me almost, you know, feel bad for her because what was she supposed to do really, you know, after Amy died and then she's put in this position of, if I move forward with the man I love, I'm going to be, you know, seen as a potential 
murderer or hitman or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's just so unfortunate for her that she had to keep him under her thumb, I guess, for kind of the rest of her life. And yet, you know, she couldn't actually go be with him. Sad, sad to think about it. But moving on to, yes, her uh, all hell breaking loose here with um, Latisse. So that story and the secret marriage, you know, between them and the secret marriage with the Gray sisters, both, both Catherine and Mary were notoriously secretly married and she did not forgive them for those marriages. Are there any less well-known situations like that, that we also don't know about? Or are those like the big three? They are the big three, but then we also know about Beth Throckmorton because it was filmed by Kapoor in his second of the Elizabeth films um, when Beth Throckmorton married Walter Rawley. And both of them were barred from court. My view of of all these... um, events is that Elizabeth is not acting out of spite. She's not acting out of jealousy. There's always a good reason why these women are barred from court and and why, in some cases, their husbands are punished as well. There's also some lesser known um, figures who who found themselves um, in trouble for marrying secretly. And one of them was Bridget Manners, who um, was related, who came from the the Earl of Rutland's family. And she left court and was supposedly ill. Her mother told Elizabeth that Bridget was ill, but in fact, Bridget was having a secret marriage. Uh, And when Elizabeth found out, again, she was was very angry indeed. And um, Bridget was put in the custody of another woman. And Bridget's mother, I think, actually spent a little time under arrest as well. Now, I think we have to recognise a number of of matters. One is that Elizabeth is in loco parentis for all the women, even if they have mothers and fathers. And consequently, they have to ask her permission to marry. So it is a slight to deference. It dishonours her if these women go ahead with marriages secretly. It's a sign of disloyalty, uh, a lack of respect. It's dishonorable. Um, And Elizabeth does punish most women. In some cases, the ones which is of women she's fond of, Mary Scudamore, for example, um, who married secretly, um, Elizabeth brings her back afterwards when she's forgiven her, when she's calmed down. Mary stays in Elizabeth's service. So that's an example where Elizabeth is prepared to forgive because the woman is is close to her. But there's also, in some cases, political issues at stake. And that's the case um, with Mary, well, less Mary, but certainly Catherine Gray. Um, Elizabeth could not afford to allow Catherine's marriage to Edward Seymour to be legitimate, because if it were seen to be, then Catherine and her children would be next in line or would might be thought next in line to the succession. And Mary, Queen of Scots, who is trying to get Elizabeth to name her heir, would be outraged. And it's not just that she would go off in a half, it's that she might very well 
work with the French, worked with other Catholics to try and dislodge Elizabeth rather than even wait for Elizabeth's death before she tried to take the throne. So there were lots of layers of, of reasons why Elizabeth behaved so harshly. Obviously, it was very harsh for those people concerned when they married without her permission. But I think it's wrong to call her spiteful. I think this is one of those um, sexist terms that male historians, particularly not just male historians, but they began the process of, of, of looking at Elizabeth and using words to describe Elizabeth, which are gendered. And one of them is, is, is spiteful. You never hear a man being called spiteful. Uh, and another is that she was hesitant and uh, she couldn't make up her mind. If she were a man, she'd be described as circumspect. But in the case of Elizabeth, it says that she's a ditherer. So I think we have to try and neutralize our language and look and see why Elizabeth behaves the way she does. In some cases, we have evidence. In other cases, we don't have direct evidence, but we can build a pattern of how she's behaving and look at it within the culture of the day. Sure, sure. And it's it's a great way, I just think you've so eloquently brought to our attention that a lot of her actions, maybe even I couldn't say all of her actions, were warranted in some way. It wasn't necessarily her emotions uh, driving these decisions. It wasn't, you know, fear or um, jealousy. You mentioned definitely, you know, it's, she had an actual case to feel uh, validated in punishing some of these people's choices. That's right. Yeah. Well, okay. So back to her favorites. Um, Dudley is obviously the number one, but she, did she have other favorites over the course of her reign or her tenure, I guess. So can you tell us a little bit about the other men that she kept as companions that were considered to be in her inner circle or her favorites? Yes. Most, um, I think it's important to recognize that Elizabeth is, it's not a kind of monogamy of favorites. Um, Elizabeth. Not has, one at a time. <laughs> it's not one at a time. It's, that there are certain men within the the group of courtiers that Elizabeth relates to in a way that leads them to be seen as her intimates. And obviously, Robert Dudley remains that way for most of his life. Uh, but there are some others that do as well. And at the same time, as Robert Dudley is one of her favorites during the 1570s, so is Christopher Hatton. Um, Christopher Hatton comes from a family which is is middle gentry. He's not, he doesn't have noble blood uh, and he's never raised to the nobility. But Elizabeth really enjoys her time with him. Um, he's a good dancer and he enjoys music and also gaming. Um, and she also, I think, enjoys the flattery that he bestows on her. He's, he's 
cautiously flirtatious. He does. He knows how to stop and and how far he can go. He uses the tropes of courtly love, and she enjoys it. And she plays. There's a lot of playfulness in the way that the two of them interact. And there are others. Charles Blunt is another one who is a, who are around at the same time, but she doesn't build up quite the same relationship with him as as she enjoys with um, Hatton. Now, the other man that is often described as a favourite is Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, who comes to a bad end. I'm I'm not comfortable really calling him a favourite. I think partly because of the age difference between them, it would make him sound a bit like a toy boy. And I don't think that's what their relationship is about. In some ways, there is an almost maternal relationship Elizabeth has with him, because Essex is Lettuce, Countess of, of Leicester's son. So it's Leicester's stepson. And when Lester dies, Elizabeth sort of almost takes him over as a, as a form of protege. I mean, Essex is delighted to be taken over. He's an extremely ambitious young man. Um, and he wants, he's not particularly interested in being a courtier, but he wants Elizabeth's support in order to get positions um, in her council, to also get positions in her army. He wants to go out and fight on the continent. And he's constantly disappointed that he doesn't get what he wants. And so their relationship has inbuilt friction, I think. It's it's true that, you know, they, that sometimes Essex plays the role of the courtly lover, but I don't think anyone takes it seriously. He is not the Earl of Leicester. Um, and the relationship between them is 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 quite different. So Essex and Elizabeth tend to fall out because actually he doesn't know where the lines should be drawn. Um, unlike Hatton, um, it, uh, who who, as I explained, did particularly in matters flirtatious. Essex goes too far in trying to get his own way with the Queen. And the result of that is that she frequently loses her temper with him um, and believes that he is not respecting her properly and also doesn't she doesn't agree with his advice. Because all the while she, these men are at her court, the person she leans on most, who we don't tend to call a courtier, perhaps mistakenly, is William Cecil. William Cecil, who later becomes Lord Burley. He is first her Secretary of State. And after that, he becomes her Lord Treasurer and again takes on the role of Secretary when Francis Walsingham dies. He's not a favourite. We don't call him a favourite. And it's interesting that we don't. Um, possibly we don't because he's, of the way he dresses. He doesn't dress in gaudy clothes. He doesn't. He, he doesn't have a lightness of touch about him, which those other three—Dudley, Hatton, and Essex—do. He plays the more serious counselor role, 
But nevertheless, he does things which courtiers do. He invites Elizabeth to his house. He entertains her and he has um, paintings uh, that capture Elizabeth and gives her gifts and she gives him gifts. So the, the distinction between a haughtier favourite and a councillor favourite is, is there, but it's, it's rather blurred. So uh, in the, the, the matter of Essex, Essex finds himself not so much seeing himself as a rival of William Cecil, as a rival of William Cecil's son, because Essex is thinking about what's going to happen when Elizabeth dies, and he wants to have a firm place, a firm role, and he wants uh, Robert Cecil to be out of it. And Essex does a couple of things that um, are designed to ensure his future. One is that he makes contact with James VI of Scotland, whom he believes will be the next king, and indeed James VI does become James I. And another thing he tries to do is to get himself and his men, his followers, in key positions in Elizabeth's government, and there he's not successful. Robert Cecil is trusted by Elizabeth um, to do the job of being a secretary, of, of managing um, the council and offering advice. And it's because of that that Essex goes down the path to self-destruction. First goes off to Ireland, it goes badly, he comes back, he enters Elizabeth's private apartments while she's still in bed. I think she doesn't even have her wig on. I mean, it's you know, a disaster. And... Um, he loses he loses her support and loses the positions that he did have and the result of that is that he tries to raise the country against this robert cecil and robert cecil's friends and he's executed as a traitor so the relationship with essex is is a strange one it's not straightforward at all it's not a repeat of elizabeth's relationship with robert dudley or even with Christopher Hatton, and nor is it uh, similar to that of um, Elizabeth and Robert Cecil, which is far closer to that of Elizabeth and Robert Cecil's father, William Cecil. The, the relationship with, with Essex is, is one of its kind, I think. I love that you pointed that out to us, that her relationships with these different people were close in different ways. Yes. And using the term favorite, you know, and I mean, I'm guilty of this too, right? When I when I started asking the question, I'm and I'm taking into consideration all the people that wrote in and asked the questions about her favorites. We tend to think that that there's a romantic connotation behind that, mm -hmm. but really, uh, these people were all her friends. And and you know, thank you for pointing out that the Cecil men could absolutely fall into that category, even though there was no speculation of romance or intimacy there. Mm -hmm. So that's very helpful. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, so now the last question about the gentleman that we have from our listeners is what did the single gentleman do when they were not attending to her? Because we know that the women around were the ones that got to quote, hang out with her and take walks in the gardens, like we said, and then play cart, you know, gamble and all those things. When, 
when the gentlemen had time off, I guess, what did they do around court? Well, I think it's important to realize that they're not always around court. Um, most of them have their own estates. Some of them are building houses. Um, Christopher Hatton, who didn't obviously physically build it, but he was involved in the building of Holdenby, a magnificent Elizabethan home. William Cecil was very um, directly involved in the building of Tibbots. Um, so they had interests outside the court. Uh, and it, we mustn't forget that they're not at court constantly. Uh, they spend time in their own homes. When they are at court, I think we have to divide the men up into those that actually sat on the Privy Council, or even if they didn't sit on the Privy Council, they were nevertheless on the outer circles of offering counsel. Um, and such men obviously were Robert Dudley. I mean, he was on the Privy Council from, I think it's 1564, though don't quote me on that. Um, the Earl of Norfolk, the Earl of Sussex, um, the man I, I began my career studying. They started off not on the council, they came onto the council, and then they're giving Elizabeth advice. They're sometimes interacting with ambassadors, um, with agents, sometimes with spies. So the, the, there's quite a lot of work leaving aside their own personal business. There's quite a lot of work which we would call state business. And then there is acting the courtier. So they would spend um, evenings uh, with the Queen, uh, dancing, dining, entertaining, sometimes playing musical instruments, sometimes uh, singing, sometimes bringing in their own musicians to entertain the Queen. It, it, so their lives were caught up with, in some ways, at least three different types of role. Um, and it, it, it was very full. They did not hang around languidly as they look in some of Nicholas Hilliard's miniatures, you know, just waiting for the Queen to notice them. They had full lives, and some of them actually were soldiers. I mean, we mustn't forget that the Earl of Essex um, spent time fighting in France, that Robert Dudley spent time in the Netherlands, the Earl of Warwick spent time fighting early on in the reign in France. So, you know, they have a life. They're not emasculated. I think this idea that you sometimes read about that some that Elizabeth somehow um, has a feminine court and these poor men are having to act like spaniels, uh, sort of licking the queen's knees and, and waiting to be patted, um, is really a false one. Well, Sue, I am sad to say that we've run out of questions from our listeners. I feel like I could keep talking to you about this all day long. You've got <laughs> such a great wealth of knowledge here. But before I let you go, I just wanted to make sure that you have a chance to tell us if there's anything that you'd like our listeners or our audience to look out for. I think many of your listeners, if they follow me on Twitter, will know that I edited the catalog for the exhibition on Mary 
Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth that has sadly just closed. But the catalogue is, is still available. And I can say that because I don't get royalties. So I'm not <laughs> trying to push something for myself. But I think it's, it's, a, very, it's a very attractive catalogue. But what I'm actually writing about now, and my book, I hope, will be out either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year, is called, it's called Regime Change. And it's looking at two things. One is how James I became King of England. And secondly, in, in, in what ways was it a new regime? To, in what respect was there a continuation from the Elizabethan period in terms of the court and policy? Uh, and in which ways were there differences? So please look out for that. And I hope the book will, will be out, as I say, either at the end of this year or next year. We are certainly waiting for that. Um, and I can't wait to read it when it comes out. Thank you for telling us about that. So everybody look look out for Sue Doran's regime change over the next few months, I guess, or possibly a year. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, as always, I want to thank our listeners for writing in because without you, we would not have an Ask the Expert um, podcast. So let me go ahead and thank... Carrie Ferguson, Julie Rowan, Renaissance Netherlands, Deborah Ashlock, History Focused, Crystalline Brooklove 26, Brittany Pickett, Linnea Lalum, Sally Baker, Jackie Rice, Mana Mato, Linda Craven, Nanette Grace, Sherry O'Neill, Jennifer Atalano, Katie Ray, and Adrian Lee Fails. And any, everybody else who's listening, again, thank you. And most of all, thank you, Professor Sue Doran, for being here with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you for your interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.